Podcastle 225, Giant Episode, for September 11th, 2012, The Cage, by Jeff Vandermeer, rated R, contains disturbing imagery, sexuality, and mushrooms. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. We've got a treat for you over the next couple episodes. This week and next, we're doing something special. Shroom Weeks, a pair of episodes featuring some crazy-ass mushrooms. Not necessarily for the effect you might expect. Certainly not with this week's episode, as you'll soon find out. It's a long one, so I'm not going to make you wait too long to dig into this week's wonderfully weird story. Podcastle's very proud to present The Cage by Jeff Vandermeer. This story was originally published in Vandermeer's book, City of Madmen and Saints, but the version we're featuring today was revised for the mammoth collection The Weird, a compendium of strange and dark stories. We featured Mr. Vandermeer's work twice here at Podcastle before, Secret Life and also his collaboration with Cat Rambo, The Surgeon's Tale which happens to be one of our most downloaded episodes. Mr. Vandermeer's short fiction has appeared on Tor.com, Black Clock, Conjunctions, and many years' best anthologies. His latest novelist, Finch, and recent nonfiction includes the Steampunk Bible. He co-edited The Weird, a 750,000-word, 1,200-page, 100-year overview of weird fiction with his wife, Anne. They're currently doing WeirdFictionReview.com, which focuses on non-fiction and fiction about the weird, much of it in the same register as this week's story. Reading to you this week is Mar Bell, who runs the Director's Note podcast, the what, how, and why of independent filmmaking. He's read a number of stories for us here, including Willow Fagan's The Interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's Coat and Hal Duncan's The Behold of the Eye. So drop by the Director's Note podcast at directorsnote.com and say hello. They've completed 260 episodes, which is really pretty astounding. A word of caution to those of you who need your stories more plot-driven. Today's story kicks off with a rather long list, probably a good four or five minutes. It's delicious and then kicks off into the story proper, but be warned. I think you'll find the wait worthwhile. So ask yourself, little prince, are you a mushroom or a man? Either way, enjoy the story. The Cage by Jeff Vandermeer The hall contained the following items, some of which were later catalogued on faded yellow sheets constrained by blue lines and anointed with mildew. Twenty-four moving boxes stacked three high, Atop the boxes stood one stuffed black swan with banded blood-red legs, its marble eyes plucked, the empty sockets a shock of outrushing cotton, or was it fungus? The bird merely a scout for the 5,325 specimens from far-off lands placed on shelves that ran along the four walls and into the adjoining corridors lit with what he could later only describe as a dark light. It illuminated, but did not lift the gloom. 
iridescent thrush corpses, the exhausted remains of tattered jellyfish floating in amber bottles, tiny mammals with bright eyes that hinted at the memory of catastrophe, their bodies frozen in brittle poses, the stink of chemicals, a whiff of blood, and one phonograph in perfect condition, wedged beside the jagged black teeth of eleven broken records, and eight framed daguriotypes of the family that had lived in the mansion, on vacation in the Southern Isles, posed in front of a hedge, blissful on the front porch. His favourite picture showed a boy of seven or eight sticking his tongue out, face animated by indecipherable delight. The frame was cracked, a smudge of blood in the lower left corner. Phonograph records and daguriotypes stood atop, one long oak table covered by a dark green cloth that could not conceal the upward thrust that had splintered the surface of the wood. Around the table stood eight oak chairs, silver lion paws sheathed their legs. The chairs dated to back before the reign of Trillian the Great Banker, the first ruler of Ambergris. He could not help but wince, noting the abuse to which the chairs had been subjected, or failed to notice one grandfather clock, its blood-splattered glass face cracked, the hands frozen at a point just before midnight, a faint repressed ticking coming from somewhere within its gears, as if the hands sought to move once again, and beneath the clock, one embroidered rug, clearly woven in the north, near the city of Morrow, perhaps even by one of his own ancestors. It depicted the arrival of Morrow Cavalry in Ambergris at the time of the mass disappearances known as the Silence. The horses and riders bathed in a halo of blood that might, in another light, be seen as part of the tapestry. Although no light could conceal, one bookcase, lacquered, stacks of books wounded, ravaged, as if something had torn through the spines. Beside the bookcase, one solicitor, dressed all in black. The solicitor wore a cloth mask over his nose and mouth. It was a popular fashion for those who believed in the dangers of the invisible world, newly mapped by the caliph's scientists. Nervous and fatigued, the solicitor, eyes blinking rapidly over the top of the mask, stood next to one pale, slender woman in a white dress. Her hooded eyes never blinked, the ethereal quality of her gaze weaving cobwebs into the distance. Her hands had recently been hacked off, the end of the bloody bandage that hid her left nub held by one pale, gaunt boy with wide, twitchy eyes. At the end of his other arm dangled a small, blue-green suitcase, his grasp as fragile as his mother's gaze. His legs trembled in his ash-grey trousers. He stared at one metal cage, three feet tall and in shape similar to the squat mortar shells that the Caliph's troops had only the year before rained down upon Ambergris during the ill-fated occupation. An emerald green cover hid its bars from view. The boy's gaze, which required him to twist neck and shoulder to the right while also raising his head to look up and behind, drew the attention of one exporter-importer, Robert Hogbotton, 35 years old, neither thin nor fat, neither handsome nor ugly. 
He wore a drab grey suit. He hoped displayed neither imagination nor lack of it. He too wore a cloth mask over his small nose and wide sardonic mouth, although not for the same reasons as the solicitor. Hogbottom considered the mask a weakness, an inconvenience, a superstition. His gaze followed that of the boy up to the high perch, an alcove set halfway up the wall where the cage sat on a window ledge. Rivulets of rain seethed against the window's thick green glass. It was the season of downpours in Ambergris. The rain would not let up for days on end, the skies blue-green-grey with moisture. Fruiting bodies would rise in all the hidden corners of the city. Nothing in the bruised sky would reveal whether it was morning, noon or dusk. It was an atmosphere well suited to the city's subterranean inhabitants, the Grey Caps, who in recent years came and went like the ebb and flow of a tide, now underground, now above ground, as if in a perpetual migration between light and dark, appearing suddenly and unwanted, only to disappear just as quickly as they had here. Nothing could make one safe. Witnessing the great spasm among the rich of buying houses without basements or with stone floors, Hogbottom had been tempted to branch out into real estate, but who knew how long the frenzy would last? No one had yet proven that such a measure, or any measure, helped. The random nature of the events had instilled a certain fatalism. Most of the city's inhabitants had no choice but to go about their business, hoping they would not be next. The solicitor was talking and had been for what seemed to Hogbottom like a rather long time. That black swan, for example, is in bad condition, Hogbottom said, just to slow the solicitor's relentless chatter. The solicitor wiped his beaded forehead with a handkerchief tinged a pale green. The bird, the bird, the solicitor said, is in superb condition. Missing eyes, yes, yes, this is true, but, he gestured at the walls, surely you see the richness of Daffod's collection. Thomas Daffod, the last in a long line of driven zoologists. Daffod's wife and son stood beside the solicitor, the remnants of a family of six. Hogbottom frowned. It's a fine collection, very fine, and he meant it. He admired a man who could so single-mindedly, perhaps obsessively, acquire such a diverse yet unified assortment of things. But my average customer needs a pot or an umbrella or a stove. I stock the odd curio from time to time, but a collection of this size? Hogbottom shrugged the famous shrug of indifference, perfected over years of haggling that disguised a more predatory sentiment. The solicitor stared at Hogbottom as if he did not believe him. What's your offer? What will you take? I'm still calculating that figure. The solicitor stood uncomfortably close to Hogbottom, his breath sour and thick, a great smudge of a man. He was sweating profusely, a greenish pallor had begun to infiltrate his skin. You might consider a little haste. Should I call slattery or ungdom instead? As if in the grip of a new, perhaps deadly emotion, his voice seemed more distorted than the mask, which puffed in and out from the violence of his speech. Hogbottom took a step back from the ferocity of the solicitor's distress. The names of his chief rivals had made a little vein in his left eyelid pulse in and out. 
especially Ungdom. Towering John Ungdom, he of the wide belly, steeped in alcohol and pork lard. Call for them then, he said, staring the solicitor down. Neither Slattery nor Ungdom would come. Despite being ruthless, their devotion to their job was incomplete, insufficient, inadequate. Hogbottom imagined them both taken up into the rain and torn to pieces by the wind, as they deserved, for the simple damning fact of their fear. The solicitor's gaze bore into his cheek for a long moment. Then, with a sigh of defeat, the foul presence was gone. The solicitor slumped into one of the chairs, loosening his collar with all the urgency of a suffocating man. "'I'm sorry for your loss, all your losses,' Hogbottom said, turning to the mother and child, who stood in mute acceptance of their fate. "'I promise I won't keep you much longer,' He meant the word sincerely, but knew his intent was meaningless to them in that moment. The solicitor made a noise between a groan and a choke that Hogbottom did not bother to catalogue. His thoughts had returned to the merchandise. Rug, clock, bookcase, phonograph, table, desk. What price might they accept? Even then, Hogbottom might not have included the cage in his calculations if the boy's stare had not kept flickering wildly toward it and back down again, stuttering like Hogbottom's own over the remnants of a success that had become utter failure. For all of the outlandish things in the room, the boy's own mother to be counted among them, the boy seemed most agitated by the cage, an object that had no more been created to harm him than the green suitcase that hung from his arm. Tell me about the cage, Hogbottom said suddenly, surprising himself. The cage up there, he pointed. Is it for sale too? The boy stiffened, stared at the floor. Outside, his father brother and two sisters were being burned as a precaution, the bodies too mutilated to have withstood a view in any way. A reflective sadness ran through Hogbottom, even as he noted the delicacy of the silver engravings on the legs of a nearby chair and the authentic maker's mark stitched onto the cushioned seat. He smiled at the boy, whose gaze remained directed at the floor. Don't you know you're safe now? The words sounded ludicrous. The woman turned to look at Hogbottom. Her eyes were black as an abyss. They did not blink and reflected nothing. He felt for a moment balanced precariously between the son's alarm and the mother's regard. The cage was always open, the woman said, her voice gravelly. Something stuck in her throat. We had a bird. We always let it fly around. It was a pretty bird. It flew high through the rooms. It... No one could find the bird after. The terrible pressure of the word after appeared to be too much for her and she fell back into her silence. We've never had a cage, the boy said, the dark suitcase swaying. We've never had a bird. They left it here. They left it. A kind of rapturous chill ran through Hogbottom. The sleepy gaze of a pig embryo floating in a jar caught his eye. Opportunity or disaster, the value of an artefact they had left behind might be considerable. The risks, however, might be more than considerable. This was the third time in the last nine months that he had been called to a house visited by the Grey Caps. Each of the previous times he had escaped unharmed. In fact, 
he had come to believe that late arrivals like himself, who took precautions and knew their history, were impervious to any side effects. Yet, even he had experienced moments of discomfort, as when, at the last house, he had walked down a white hallway to the room where the merchandise awaited him and found a series of dark smudges and trails and tracks of blood. Halfway there, he had spied a dark object, shaped like a piece of dried fruit, glistening from the floor. Puzzled, he had stood there for a moment, only to recoil when he realised it was a human ear. This time, according to the messenger Hogbottom paid to keep him appraised of potential opportunities, the solicitor had arrived in the early afternoon to find the bodies and survivors. Arms and legs had been stuck into the walls between specimen jars, arranged in intricate poses that displayed a perverse sense of humour. A tingling sensation crept into Hogbottom's fingertips. A price had materialised in his mind. The silence became more absolute. All around, dead things watched one another, saw everything, but remembered nothing. Two thousand, for everything. The solicitor sighed, almost crumpled in on himself. The woman blinked rapidly, as if puzzled, and then stared at Hogbottom with a hatred more real for being so distant. All the former protests of the solicitor, even the boy's fear, were nothing next to that look. The red at the end of her arms had become paler, as if the white bandages had begun to heal her. He heard himself say, Three thousand if you include the cage. And it was true, he realised. He wanted the cage. The solicitor, trying to mask some small personal distress now, giggled and said, Done, but you must retrieve it yourself. I'm not well. A sour smell had entered the room. On the ladder, Hogbottom experienced a moment of vertigo. The world spun, then righted itself as he continued to the top. He peered onto the windowsill. Something stared at him from beside the cage. A horrible, ugh, sound came from his mouth, and he recoiled, almost lost his balance as he flailed at empty air, managed to fall back against the ladder, and only then realised that what he had seen were just the missing marble eyes of the swan placed there by some prankster, or... He caught his breath, tried to swallow the unease that pressed down on his shoulders, his tongue, his eyelids. The cage stood to the right of the ladder, and he was acutely conscious of having to lock his legs onto the ladder's sides as he slowly leaned toward the cage. Below, the solicitor and the boy were speaking, but their voices seemed dulled and distant. He hesitated. What might be in the cage? What horrible thing far worse than a human ear? The odd idea struck him that he would pull the cord to reveal Thomas Dafford's severed head. He could see the bars beneath the cloth, though. Whatever lived inside the cage would remain inside the cage. Now that it was his property, his acquisition, he refused to suffer the same failure of nerve as slattery or ungdom. The cover of the cage, which in the dim light appeared to be sprinkled with a luminous green dust, opened like a curtain. With a sharp yank on the drawstring, Hogbottom drew aside the cover and flinched, again nearly fell, a sensation of displaced air flowing across his face as if something moved within. But the cage was empty. He stood there for an instant, breathing heavily, staring into the cage, 
Nothing. It contained nothing. Relief came burrowing out of his bones, followed by disappointment. Empty. Except for some straw lying in the bottom of the cage, and, dangling near the back, almost as an afterthought, a perch that swayed back and forth, the movement no doubt caused by the speed with which he had drawn back the cover. A latched door extended the full three feet from the base to the top of the cage and could be slid back on special grooves. Stained green, the metal bars featured detailed work as fine as he had ever seen, intricate flowers and vines with sinister little figures peering out of a background rich with mushrooms. He could sell it for four or five thousand with the right sales pitch. Hogbottom looked down through the murk, somehow encouraged by the few lamps. It's empty, he shouted down. The cage is empty, but I'll take it. An unintelligible answer floated up. As his sight adjusted to the scene below, the distant solicitor in his chair, the other two still standing, he thought for a horrible second that they were melting. The boy seemed melded to his suitcase, the green of it inseparable from the white of his attached arm. The woman's nubs were impossibly white, as if she had grown new bones. The solicitor was just a splash of green. When he stood on solid ground again, facing them, he could not control his shaking. All around, on the arms of the chairs, on the table, atop the bookcase, white mushrooms had risen on slender stalks, their gills tinged red. I'll have the papers to you tomorrow, after I've catalogued all the items, he said. No, he wouldn't. He knew that now. The solicitor just sat in his chair and giggled uncontrollably. It was nice to meet you, Hogbottom said, unwilling to let any of them out of his sight as he backed slowly across the room to the door that led to the next room and the room after that and then, hopefully, the outside, by which time he would be running. Yes, 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 the solicitor said and giggled again, his face as green and wrinkly as lizard skin. The woman's stubs had sprouted white tendrils of fungus that lazily wound their way around the dried blood and obscured it. Her eyes were slowly filling with white. Hogbottom bumped into the damaged table and almost fell. He edged towards the door, groping behind him for the knob. I will see you again soon and under better, under better. He could not finish his sentence. The boy's arms were dark green, fuzzy and indistinct, as if he were a still life made of points of paint on a canvas. His suitcase, once blue, had turned a blackish green, for the fungi had engulfed it, much as ivy had engulfed the eastern wall of the mansion. All the terrible knowledge of his condition shone through the boy's eyes, and yet still he held his mother's arm, as the white tendrils wound round both their limbs in an ever more permanent embrace. Hogbottom later believed he would have stood at the door forever, hand on the knob, the solicitor's giggle a low whine in the background, if not for what happened next. The broken clock groaned and finally struck midnight. The shuddering stroke reverberated through the thousands of jars of preserved animals. The solicitor looked up in sudden terror and, with a soft popping sound, exploded into a lightly falling rain of emerald spores that drifted to the floor with as slow and tranquil a grace as the seeds of a dandelion. Outside, 
Hogbottom tore off his mask, knelt and threw up beside the fountain that guarded the path back to Albemuth Boulevard. Behind him, across a square of dark green grass, watched over by the current ruler's grim-looking soldiers, the bodies of Daft, his daughters and his other son, smouldering grey and black. The charred smell mixed with mildew and the rain that stippled his back. His arms and legs trembled with an innervating weakness. His mouth felt hot and dry. For a long time he sat in the same position, watching pinpricks break his reflection in the fountain. He shivered as the water shivered. He'd never come this close before. Either they had died long before he arrived or long after he left. The solicitor's liquid giggle trickled through his ears, along with the soft pop of the spores. He shuddered, relaxed, shuddered again. When his assistant, Alan Bristlewing, questioned, as he often did, the wisdom of taking on such hazardous work, Hogbottom would smile and change the subject. He could not choose between two conflicting impulses, the upwelling of excitement at pursuit of a mystery and the desire to flee Ambergris and return to Morrow, the city of his birth, as each new episode receded into memory, his nerve returned, somehow stronger. The boy's arm fused to his suitcase. Holding on to the light flecked stone lip of the pool, Hogbottom plunged his head into the smooth water. The chill shocked him. It pricked his skin, cut through the numbness to burn the inside of his nose. He reared up and a sob escaped him, and another, and then a third that bent him over the water again. The back of his neck was suddenly cool. When he pulled away, he looked down at his reflection, and the mask he had made to hide his emotions was gone. He was himself again. The cage stood beside him, slick with rain. Hogbottom had gripped its handle so hard during his escape. From every corner, Daft's infernal collection of dead things staring innocently at him. That he had been branded where the skin had not been rubbed off his palm. He bore the mark of the handle a filigree of unfamiliar symbols from behind which strange eyes peered out. In the fading light, with the rain falling harder, the fungi appeared to have been washed off the cover of the cage. Perversely, this fact disappointed him. With each new encounter, he had come to expect further revelations. Hogbottom stood up. Across the courtyard, the unfortunate soldiers assigned to the bodies had begun to nail boards across the doors and windows of the mansion. One look at his face as he had staggered to safety had told them everything. No doubt they would have boarded him in too, if not for his continual bribes and uncanny ability, in their view, to avoid contamination. No one pulled the shades open to protest being trapped inside. No one banged on the door, begging to be let out. They had already begun their journey. Hogbottom wiped his mouth with his handkerchief. In truth, all he had done was steal a cage. Depending on what hysteria-induced rules the city's leaders had adopted this fortnight, the mansion grounds might be cordoned off or the mansion itself put to the torch and the merchandise he had acquired go unnoticed except in his ledger of potential acquisitions lost. The woman's blank gaze. Blinking away the rain, Hogbottom let out a deep breath, stuffed his mask in a pocket, wrapped the cloth around his injured hand and picked up the cage, he would have to hurry to beat the curfew, a measure he did approve of. Ambergris at night the past few weeks, made difficult by the constant rain, had played host to an unnerving amount of debauchery. Days of wholesome trade and other industrious activities became the mirror opposite after dusk, as if the grey cap's presence had had other effects. Orgies had been reported in abandoned churches. Grotesque and lewd water puppet shows were staged down by the docks. Weekly, the merchant quarter held midnight auctions of paintings that could only be termed obscene. The clock struck midnight. 
The cage made him list to the side as he started walking up the path to the main road. Whenever he stopped to switch the cage from his left to his right hand and back again, the weight never seemed the same, at first heavier than he remembered it, and then lighter. Hogbottom's wife, Rebecca, was already asleep when he walked up the seven flights of stairs and entered their apartment. She had turned off the lamps because it gave her the advantage in case of an intruder. The faint scent of lilacs and honeysuckle told him the flower vendor from the floor above had been by. A dim half-light shone from the living room to his left as he set down the cage, took off his shoes and socks and hung his raincoat on the coat rack. Directly ahead lay the dining room with its mould-encrusted window, the purple sheen burning darkly as the rain fed it. He had checked the fungal guard just a week ago and found no leakage, but he made a mental note to check it again in the morning. Hogbottom found a towel in the hall closet and used it to dry his face, his hair and then the outside of the cage. Again picking up its uncomfortable weight, he tiptoed into the living room, the rug beneath his feet thick but cold. A series of dark shapes greeted him, most of them items from his store. Lamps and side tables, a couch, a long low coffee table, a bookcase, a grandfather clock. Beyond them lay the balcony, long lost to fungi and locked up as a result. The fey light almost transformed the living room's contents into the priceless artefacts he had told her they were. He had chosen them, not for their value, but for their texture, their smell, and for the sounds they made when moved or sat upon or opened. Little of it appealed visually, but she delighted in what he had chosen, and it meant he could store the most important merchandise at the shop, where it was more secure. Hogbottom set the cage down on the living room table. The palms of his hands were hot and raw from carrying it. He took off the rest of his clothes and laid them on the arm of the couch. The light came from the bedroom, which lay beyond the living room. He walked into the bedroom and turned to the left, the closed window above the bed reflecting back the iridescent light that came from her and her alone. Rebecca lay on her back, the sheets draped across her body, exposing the long, black, vaguely tear-shaped scar on her left thigh. He ran his gaze over it lustfully. Hogbottom walked around to the right side and eased himself into the bed. He moved up beside her and pressed himself against the darkness of the scar. An image of the woman from the mansion flashed through his mind. Rebecca turned in her sleep and put an arm across his chest as he moved onto his back. Her hand, warm and soft, was as delicate as the starfish that glided through the shallows down by the docks. It looked so small against his chest. The light came from her open eyes, although he could tell she was asleep. It was a silvery glow, awash with faint phosphorescent sparks of blue, green and red, shivers and hiccups of splintered light, as if a half-dozen tiny lightning storms had welled up in her gaze. What rich worlds did she dream of? And, for the thousandth time, what did the light mean? He had met her on a business trip to Stockton after the fungal infection that had resulted in the blindness, the odd light, the scar. He had never known her whole. A joyful sorrow rose within him as he watched the light emanating from her. They had argued about having children just the day before. Every word he had thrown at her in anger had hurt him so deeply that finally he had been wordless, and all he could do was stare at her. Looking at her now, her face unguarded, her body next to his, he could not help loving her for the scar, the eyes, even if it meant he wished her to be this way. The next morning, Hogbottom woke to the fading image of the woman's bloody bandages and the sounds of Rebecca making breakfast. She knew the apartment better than he did, knew its surfaces, its edges, the exact number of steps from table to chair to doorway, and she liked to make meals in a kitchen that had become more familiar to her than it could ever be to him. 
Yet, she also asked him to bring back more furniture for the living room and bedroom or rearrange existing furniture. She became bored otherwise. I want an unexplored country. I want a hint of the unknown, she said once, and Hogbottom agreed with that sentiment, up to a point. There are things Hogbottom wished would stay unknown. On the mantel opposite the bed, for example, lay those of his grandmother's possessions that his relatives in Mora had sent to him. A pin, a series of portraits of family members, a set of spoons, a poorly copied family history. A letter from his sister Emily had accompanied the heirlooms, describing his grandmother's last days, which had not been without pain, perhaps deservedly so, but even Hogbottom had recalled from the ghoulishness with which Emily had described her wasting away. He had not gone to the funeral, he had not even brought himself to tell Rebecca about the death six weeks before. All she knew of it was the crinkling of the envelope as he had smoothed out the letter to read it, that he had brought a pin and a spoon home from the store, telling her would have meant explaining why he hadn't gone to the funeral. The smell of bacon and eggs spurred him into a bathrobe and a bleary-eyed stumble through the living room to the kitchen. A dead sort of almost sunlight, pale and lukewarm, suffused the kitchen window through the purple mould and the thin veins of green. A watermark of the city appeared on the glass, wavery spires, forlorn flags, the indistinct shape of other apartment buildings. Rebecca stood in the kitchen, spatula in hand, framed by the dour light. Her black hair was brightly dark. Her dress, a green and blue sweep of fabric, fit her loosely. She was intent on the skillet in front of her, gazing unblinking, mouth pursed. As he wrapped his arms around Rebecca, a sense of guilt made him frown. He had come so close last night, almost as close as the boy, the woman. Was that as close as he could get without... The question had haunted him throughout his quest. A sudden depth of emotion arose from nowhere and he found that his eyes were wet. Rebecca snuggled into his embrace and turned toward him. Her eyes looked almost normal during the day. Flecks of phosphorescence shot lazily across the pupils. Did you sleep well? she asked. You came home so late. I slept. I'm sorry I was late. It was a difficult job this time. When he had to lie to her, even his thoughts became very still. Profitable? Her elbow nudged him as she turned the eggs over with the spatula. Not very. Really? Why not? He stiffened. If she had been there, would Rebecca have realised the mansion had become a death trap? Would she have smelled the blood, tasted the fear? He served as her eyes. But would he deprive her of anything by not describing its horrors in every detail? Well, he began. He shut his eyes, the sick gaze of the solicitor flickering over the scene of his own death. Even as he held Rebecca, he could feel a distance opening up between them. You don't need to shut your eyes to see, she said, pulling out of his embrace. How did you know? He knew what she would say. I heard you close them. She smiled with grim satisfaction. It was sad, he said, sitting down at the kitchen table. Nothing terrible, just sad. The wife had lost her husband and had to sell the estate. She had a boy with her who kept holding on to a little suitcase. The remnants of the solicitor float into the ground, curling up like confetti, the boy's stare fluttering between him and the cage. I felt sorry for them. They had some nice heirlooms, but most of it was already promised to slattery and undone. I didn't get much. They had a nice rug from Morrow, from before the silence, nice detail of moral cavalry coming to our rescue. I would have liked to have bought it. She carefully slid the eggs and bacon onto a plate and brought it to the table. Thank you, he said. She had burned the bacon. The eggs were too dry. He never mentioned it. She needed these little slights of hand, these illusions of illumination. 
It was edible. Mrs. Bloodgood took me down to the Moorhead Museum yesterday, she said. Many of their artefacts are on open display. The textures were amazing, and the flower vendor visited, as you may have guessed. Rebecca's father, Paul, was a curator for a small museum in her hometown of Stockton. Her father liked to joke that Hogbottom was just a temporary caretaker for items that would eventually find their way to him, while Hogbottom had always thought museums hoarded that which should be available on the open market. Rebecca had been her father's assistant until the disease stole her sight. Now Hogbottom sometimes took her down to his store to help him sort and catalogue new acquisitions. I did notice the flowers, he said. I'm glad the museum was worth it. For some reason, his hand shook as he ate his eggs. He put his fork down. Isn't it good, she asked. It's very good, he said. I just need water. He got up and walked to the sink. The faucet had been put in five weeks ago, after a two-year wait. Before, they had gotten jugs of water from a well down in the valley. He watched with satisfaction as the faucet spluttered and his glass gradually filled up. It's a nice bird, or whatever, she said from behind him. Bird? The glass clinked against the edge of the sink as he momentarily lost his grip. Or lizard, or whatever it is. What is it? He turned, leaned against the sink. What are you talking about? That cage you brought home with you. A vague fear crept up his spine. Was she joking? There's nothing in the cage. It's empty. Rebecca laughed, a pleasant, liquid sound. That's funny, because your empty cage was rattling earlier. At first it scared me. Something was moving around in there. I couldn't tell if it was a bird or a lizard, or I would have reached through the bars and touched it. But you didn't. No, there's nothing in the cage. Her face underwent a subtle change, and he knew she thought he doubted her on something at which she was expert, the interpretation of sound. He couldn't stay quiet for long. She couldn't read his face without touching it, but he suspected she knew the difference between types of silence. He laughed. I'm joking. It's a lizard, but it bites, so you were wise not to touch it. Suspicion tightened her features. Then she relaxed and smiled at him. She reached out, felt for his plate with her left hand and stole a piece of his bacon. I knew it was a lizard. He longed to go into the living room where the cage stood atop the table, but he couldn't. Not just yet. It's quiet in here, he said softly, already expecting the reply. No, it's not. It's not quiet at all. It's loud. The left corner of his mouth curled up as he replied by rote. What do you hear? Her smile widened. Well, first, there's your voice, my love. A nice, deep baritone. Then there's Hobson downstairs playing a phonograph as low as he can to avoid disturbing the Potucks, who are at this moment in an argument about something so petty I will not give you the details, while to the side, just below them, her eyes narrowed, I believe the Smythes are also making bacon. Above us, old man Cox is pacing and pacing with his cane, muttering about money. On his balcony, there's a sparrow chirping, which makes me realise now that the animal in your cage must be a lizard, because it sounds like something clicking and clucking, not chirping. Unless you've got a chicken in there. No, no, it's a lizard. Now he had, for a second time, admitted aloud that something might indeed be in the cage. What kind of lizard? It's a saffant fire lizard from the Southern Isles, he said. It only ever grows in cages, which it makes itself by chewing up dirt, changing it into metal and regurgitating it. It can only eat animals that can't see it. She laughed in appreciation and got up and hugged him. The feel of her, the smell of her hair, made him forget his fear. It's a good story, but I don't believe you. I do know this, though. You're going to be late for work. Once on the ground floor, where he did not think it would make a difference if Rebecca heard, Hogbottom set down the cage. 
The awkwardness of carrying it, uneven and swaying, down the spiral staircase had unnerved him further. He was sweating under his raincoat. His breath came hard and fast. The musty quality of the lobby, the traces of tiny rust mushrooms that spread along the floor like mouse tracks, the mottled green-orange mould on the windows in the front door did not put him at ease. Someone had left a worn umbrella leaning against the front door. He grabbed it and turned back to stare at the cage. Was this the moment that Ungdom or Slattery's ill wishes caught up with him? He drove the umbrella tip between the bars. The cover gave a little crease in and then regained its former shape as he withdrew the umbrella. Nothing came leaping out at him. He tried again. No response. Is something in there? he asked. The cage did not reply. Umbrella held like a sword in front of him. Hogue Bottom shoved the cover aside and leapt back. The cage was still empty. The perch swung back and forth madly from the violence with which he had pulled aside the cover. The woman had said, The cage was always open. The boy had said, We never had a cage. The solicitor had never offered an opinion. The swinging perch, the emptiness of the cage depressed him. He could not say why. He drew the cover back across the cage, felt someone's gaze at his back, and whirled around to find their landlady, the emaciated Mrs Willis, glaring at him from the stairwell. He had a sudden vision of how strange he must look to her. Mrs Willis said in a clipped tone that emitted no humour, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, I don't believe Mrs Constance from the third floor would like that you're doing it with her umbrella. Robert Hogbotton and Sons, quality importers of fine new and used items from home and abroad, was situated on Albemouth Boulevard, halfway between the docks and the residential sections that descended into a valley ever in danger of flooding. It took up the first floor of a solid two-storey wooden building owned by a monk in the religious quarter. The sign exhibited optimism. There were no sons. Not yet. The time was not right, the situation too uncertain, no matter what Rebecca might say. Always in the back of his mind, spurring him on, his brother Richard's threat to swoop down with the rest of the Hogbottom clan to save the family name should he fail. But fail at what? The missives Richard sent from Morrow every few months were masterpieces of vague and rambling aggression, to which he rarely replied. The display window, protected from the rain by an awning, held a battered mauve couch, an opulent gold-leaf-covered chair, nicked by Hogbottom along with several other treasures during the panicked withdrawal of the Caliph's troops. A phonograph, a large red vase, an undistinguished-looking saddle, and Alan Bristlewing, his assistant. Bristlewing knelt inside the display, carefully placing records in the stand beside the phonograph. He had already wiped the outside of the window clean of fungi that had accumulated the night before. A sour smell emanated from these remnants, but the rain would wash it all away in an hour or two. Hogbottom plunged on through the open door, ignoring Bristlewing's wave and banging the cage against the frame despite his best efforts. A few button-shaped mushrooms, a fiery red, fell to the floor. Bristlewing, framed by the window display, was a scruffy, short, animated man with a perpetual laconic grin, outfitted with some antiquities of his own, courtesy of a sidewalk dentist. He smelled of cigar smoke and often disappeared for days on end. Rumours of debaucheries with prostitutes and week-long fishing trips down the river moth buzzed around Bristlewing without settling on him. Hogbottom could not afford to hire more dependable help. Morning, Bristlewing said, on one knee, looking up at him. Good morning, Hogbottom replied. Any customers last night? None with any money. Bristlewing's grin vanished as he saw the cage. Oh, I see you went to another one. He stood and put one hand out to take the cage from Hogbottom. 
Don't touch it! The surge of anger surprised Hogbottom and froze Bristlewing in mid-grasp. Hogbottom struggled for control, managed to follow up with, I'll put it in the back, thanks very much. Bristlewing raised one eyebrow, pulling back his hand with exaggerated slowness. Suit yourself. With an effort, Hogbottom asked, Are the inventory books up to date? Course they're current, Bristlewing said, turning stiffly away. By design, the way to Hogbottom's makeshift office was blocked by a maze of items, from which rose a collective must-metal-rotted dusty smell that he loved fiercely. This smell of an authentic and pure antiquity validated his selections as surely as any papers or certificates. That customers tripped and lost their bearings as they wandered the arbitrary footpaths mattered little to Hogbottom. The received family wisdom said that thus hemmed in, the customer had no choice but to buy something from the stacks of chairs, umbrellas, watches, pens, fishing rods, clothes, enameled boxes, plaster casts of lizards, elegant mirrors of glass and copper, reading glasses, trophidon religious icons, boards for playing dice made from olifant ivory, porcelain water jugs, globes of the world, model ships, old medals, sword canes, musical clocks, and other ephemera from past lives or distant places. And, in seeking out a perfectly ordinary set of dinner plates, a customer might have an even more intimate encounter, be forced, for example, to face the flared nostrils and questioning tongue of a skamu erotic mask. An overwhelming sense of the secret history of these objects could sometimes send him into a trance. At the back, Hobotton's workspace had been colonised by a similar morass of riches. His former desk lay beneath a stack of oversized and ancient books, folders full of invoices, a gigantic fire-glazed pot, several telescopes he'd been unable to unload, and a collection of metal and wooden frogs he'd acquired impulsively. Shoved in around the edges, personal keepsakes, a favourite pen, a shell he'd found while on vacation in the Southern Isles when he was six, and daguerreotypes of family. Rebecca, his brother Stephen, lost to the family now, having signed up for Morrow's army on a monstrous but historically common whim, and his mother, Gertrude, standing on the lawn of someone else's mansion in Morrow. Beyond the besieged desk, against the back wall, stood two doors. The first led to a private bathroom, recently installed, much to Bristlewing's delight. Hogbottom headed for the second door, which was very old, wormholed and studded with odd metal symbols that Hogbottom had filched from an abandoned shrine in the religious quarter. He could hear Bristlewing worrying at some artefact behind a row of old bookcases stacked high with cracked flower pots, so he pulled the key out of his pants pocket, unlocked the door and went inside. Why should it matter if Bristlewing saw him go in? And yet it did. The door shut silently behind him when he was alone, except for the cage. The light that cast its yellowing glare upon the room came from an old-fashioned oil lamp nailed into the room's far wall. Nothing, at first glance, distinguished the room from any other room. It contained a tired-looking dining table, around which stood four worn chairs. To one side, plates, cups, bowls, and utensils sat atop a cabinet with a mirror that served as a backboard. The mirror was veined with a purplish fungus that had managed to infiltrate the minute fractures in the glass. He had worried that the city's enforcers might confiscate the mirror on one of their weekly inspections of his store, but they had ignored it, perhaps recognising the age of the mirror and the way the mould had itself begun to grow over the fungus. In addition to three inventory ledgers, the table held three place settings. Across the middle of the table lay a parchment, so old that it looked as if it might disintegrate into dust at the slightest touch. A bottle of port, half full, stood at the far end of the table. 
This was his new office, having been driven there by his own acquisitions. Hogbottom set the cage down beside the table. His hand stung from where the imprint of the handle had branded itself onto his skin. Bound in red leather, the ledger books were imported from Morrow. The off-white pages were tissue paper thin to accommodate as many sheets as possible. The three ledgers represented the inventory for the past three months. Thirty others, as massive and as unwieldy, had been wrapped in a blanket and carefully hidden beneath the floorboards in his office. Two separate notebooks to record unfortunate but necessary dealings with Ungdom and Slattery, suitably yellow and brown, had been tossed into an unlocked drawer of his abandoned desk. Yesterday had been slow, only five items sold, two of them phonograph records. He frowned when he read Bristlewing's description of the buyers as short lady with walking stick, did not give a name, and man looked sick, took forever to make up his mind, bought one record after all that time. Bristlewing did not respect the system. By contrast, a typical Hogbottom penned buyer entry read like an investigative report. Miss Glissandra Bustle, 4232 East Monroe Street, late 40s, grey silver hair, startling blue eyes, Wore an expensive green dress but cheap black shoes, scuffed. She insisted on calling me Mr. Hogbottom. She examined a very expensive Occidental vase and commented favourably on a bone hairpin, a pearl snuff box and a watch once worn by a prominent Trophidian priest. However, she only bought the hairpin. If Bristlewing disliked the detail required by Hogbottom for the ledgers, he disliked the room itself even more. After carefully cataloguing its contents upon their arrival three years before, Hogbottom had asked Bristlewing a question. Do you know what this is? Old musty room, no air. No, it's not an old musty room with no air. Fooled me, Bristlewing had said, and scowling left him there. But Bristlewing was wrong, dead wrong. Bristlewing did not understand the first thing about the room. How could he? And how could Hogbottom explain that the room was perhaps the most important room in the world, that he often found himself inside it, even while walking around the city, at home reading to his wife, or buying fruit and eggs from the farmer's market, that, in his mind, the room and the cage were one and the same. The history of the room went back to the silence itself. His great-great-grandfather, Samuel Hogbottom, had been the first Hogbottom to move to Ambergris much against the wishes of the rest of his extended family, included his 20-year-old son John, who stayed in Morrow. For a man who had uprooted his wife and daughter from all that was familiar to take up residence in an unknown, sometimes cruel city, Samuel Hogbottom became remarkably successful, establishing three stores down by the docks. It seemed only a matter of time before more of the Hogbottom clan moved down to Ambergris. However, this was not to be, one day, Samuel Hogbottom, his wife and his daughter disappeared just through the many thousands of souls who vanished from Ambergris during the episode known as The Silence, leaving behind empty buildings, empty courtyards, empty houses, and both dread and emptiness in the lives of those left behind, with no clues as to what had happened or how. It was now 100 years since the silence and people could be forgiven for their loss of memory, for wanting to ignore the horror in the idea that the grey caps might have been the cause. Everyone still thought it, but few said it. What could not be proven should not be given voice, should be forgotten. Hogbottom remembered one line in particular from John's diary. I cannot believe my father has really disappeared. It is possible he could have come to harm, but to simply disappear, along with my mother and sister? I keep thinking that they will return one day and explain what happened to me. 
It is too difficult to live with otherwise. It is a wound that never heals. Sitting in his mother's bedroom with the diary open before him, the young Robert Hogbotton had felt a chill across the back of his neck. What happened to Samuel Hogbotton? He had spent many summer afternoons in the attic, surrounded by antiques, trying to find out. He combed through old letters Samuel had sent home before his disappearance. He visited the family archive. He wrote to relatives in other cities. His mother merely disapproved of such inquiries. His grandmother actively taunted him. Yes, waste your life with that nonsense, she would say from the huge throne of an ancient king they had bought on the cheap, which seemed to best suit her rock-hard old bones. You won't get any further than your father or his father before him. The lot of you aren't smart enough to cook an egg properly. He could not talk to his father about it. That cold and distant figure was rarely home, but he had them both to thank for something at least. He prided himself on rarely sharing his opinions with anyone. Appearing to be a blank slate stood him in good stead in his business. With his sister, the young Hogbottom continued his investigations behind his grandmother's back, would act out scenarios with the house as the backdrop. They would ask the maids questions to fill in gaps in their knowledge and thus uncover the meaning of words like grey cap. On his 13th birthday, he helped himself to an old sketch in his grandmother's upstairs bedroom that showed the apartment's living room. Samuel Hogbottom surrounded by smiling relatives on a visit, then, with a profound and uncomplicated sense of happiness, listened from downstairs to her shrieks of displeasure upon finding it missing. But for his sister, all this was just relief of a temporary boredom, and he was soon so busy learning the family business that the mystery faded from his thoughts. By the age of 20, he decided to leave Morrow and travel to Ambergris, surprised to see his grandmother crying as he left. No Hogbottom had set foot in Ambergris for 90 years, and it was precisely for this reason that he chose the city, or so he told himself. In Morrow, under the predatory eye of Richard, he'd felt as if none of his plans would ever be successful. In Ambergris, he started out poor but independent, operating a sidewalk stall that sold fruit and broadsheets, at odd times, at an auction, looking at jewellery that reminded him of something his mother might wear, sneaking round Ungdom's store examining all that merchandise, so much richer than what he could acquire at the time. Thoughts of the silence wormed their way into his head. The day after he signed the lease on his own store, Hogbottom visited Samuel's apartment. He had the address from some of the man's letters, the building lay in a warren of derelict structures that rose from the side of the valley to the east of the merchant quarter. It took Hogbottom an hour to find it, the carriage ride followed by progress on foot. He knew he was close when he had to climb over a wooden fence with a sign on it that read, Off Limits by Order of the Ruling Council. The sky was overcast, the sunlight weak yet bright, and he walked through the tenements feeling ethereal, dislocated. Here and there he found walls where bones had been mixed with the mortar and he knew by these signs that such places had been turned into graveyards. When he finally stood in front of the apartment, on the ground level of a three-storey building, he wondered if he should turn around and go home. The exterior was boarded up, fire-scorched and splotched with brown-yellow fungi. The facing rows of buildings formed a corridor of light, at the end of which a stray dog sniffed at the ground, picking up a scent. He could see its ribs even from so far away. Somewhere, a child began to cry. The sound thin, attenuated, automatic. The sound was so unexpected, almost horrifying, that he thought it must not be a baby at all, but something mimicking a baby, hoping to lure him closer. After a few more moments, he reached a decision and took a crowbar from his pack. Ten minutes later, he had pried up the boards and the door stood revealed, a pale X running across the dark wood. He realised he was breathing in shallow gasps. 
No one could help him if he opened the door and needed help, but he still wanted whatever was inside the apartment. It could be anything, even the end of his life, and yet anticipation surged through him and he didn't know why. Hogebottom pulled the door open and stepped inside, crowbar held like a weapon. It took a moment for his eyes to adjust to the darkness. The air was stale, windows to the right and left of the hallway, although boarded up, letting enough light to make patches of dust on the floor shine like colonies of tiny, subdued fireflies. The hallway was perversely ordinary. In the even more dimly lit living room, Hogebottom could make out that some vagrant had long ago set up digs and abandoned them. A sofa had been overturned and a blanket used as a roof for a makeshift tent. Dog droppings were more recent. A rabbit carcass, withered but caked with dry blood, might have been as fresh as the week before. The wallpaper had collapsed into a mumbling senility of fragments and strips. Paintings lay in tumbled flight against the floor. A faint, bitter smell rose from the room, a sourness that revealed hidden negotiations between wood and fungi. Hogebottom relaxed. The grey caps had not been in the apartment for a long time. He let the crowbar dangle in his hand. Hogebottom entered the dining room. Brittle pages of newsprint lay across the dining room table, held in place by a bottle of port with a glass beside it. Infiltrated by cobwebs, by dust, by mottled fragments of wood, the table also held plates and place settings. The stale air had preserved the contents of the plates in a mummified state. Three plates, three pieces of ossified chicken, accompanied by a green smear of vegetable long since dried out. Samuel Hogbottom, his wife Sarah, his daughter Jane, all three chairs, worm-eaten and rickety, were pulled out slightly from the table. A fourth chair lay off to the side, smashed into fragments by time or violence. Hogbottom stared at the chairs for a long time. Had they been moved at all in the last century? How could anyone know? Unfolded napkins lay on the seat of two of the chairs. The third, that of the person who would have been reading the newspaper, had not been used, nor had the silverware for that setting. The silverware of the other two was positioned peculiarly. On the right side, the fork lay at an angle near the plate as if thrown there. Something dark and withered had been skewered by the fork's tines. Did it match an irregularity in the dried flesh of the chicken upon the matching plate? The knife was missing entirely. On the left side of the table, the fork was still stuck into its piece of chicken, the knife soaring into the flesh beside it. A prickly cold sensation spread across Hogebottom's skin. Had the family been eaten and simply disappeared? In mid-meal? The fork, the knife, the chairs, the broadsheet, the meals uneaten, half-eaten, the bottle of port, the mystery gnawed at him, even as it became even more impenetrable. Nothing he and his sister had imagined could account for it. Taking out his pocket knife, Hogebottom leaned over the table. He carefully pulled aside one leaf of the broadsheet to reveal the date, the very day of the silence. The date transfixed him. He pulled out the chair where surely Samuel Hogebottom must have sat, reading his papers, and slowly slid into it, looking down the table to where his daughter and wife would have been sitting. Continue to read the paper with its articles on the turmoil at the docks, preparing for the windfall due with the return of the fishing fleet, a brief message on blasphemy from a priest, the crossword puzzle, a sudden shift, a dislocation, a puzzled look from his wife, and he had stared up from his paper in that last moment to see what? Hogebottom stared across the table again, focused on the bottle of port. The glass was half full. He leaned forward, examined the glass. The liquid inside had dried into sludge over time. A faint imprint of tiny lips could be seen on the edge of the glass. The cork was tightly wedged into the mouth of the bottle. A further mystery. 
When had the port been poured? Beyond the bottle, the fork with the skewered meat came into focus. It did not, from this angle, look as if it came from the piece of chicken on the plate, and the plate was nailed to the table. He pulled back, as much from a thought that had suddenly occurred to him as from the strangeness of the fork, the plate. A dim glint from the floor besides the chair caught his eye. Samuel Hogbottom's glasses, twisted into a shape that resembled a circle attached to a line and two U-shapes on either end. As he stared at the glasses, the questions overwhelmed him, until he was not just sitting in Samuel Hogbottom's chair, but in the chairs of thousands of souls, looking out into darkness, trying to see what they had seen, to know what they came to know. The thing that might have been a baby was still screaming as Hogbottom stumbled outside, gasping. He ran over bits of brick and rubble. He ran through the long weeds. He ran past the buildings with mortar made from bones. He stumbled over the fence that said he should not have been there. When he did stop, gasping for breath, having reached the familiar cobblestones of Ambermouth, the pressure in his temples remained, the stray thought lodged in his head like a virus. What Samuel Hogbottom seen? And was it necessary to disappear to have seen it? After that visit, even the abandoned rooms of the silence lost their hold on Hogbottom. He would go in with the workmen and find old, dimly lit spaces from which whatever had briefly imbued them with a ghastly intensity had long since departed. He stopped acquiring artefacts from such places, although in a sense it was too late. Ungdom, slattery in their ilk, had already begun to slander him spreading rumours about his intent and his sanity. Then finally, the breakthrough. A series of atrocities at one mansion after the other, bringing him closer than ever before. That was the hundred-year-old trail that had led him to this point, now, in that room, moved at great expense, staring at a cage that might or might not contain an answer. That night, he made love to Rebecca. Her scar gleamed by the light from her eyes, which at the height of her rapture, blazed so brightly that the bedroom seemed transported from night to day. As he reached release, the light registered as an ecstatic shudder that penetrated his skin, his bones, his heart. She called out his name and ran her hands down his back, across his face, her eyes sparking with pleasure. At such moments, when the strangeness of her seeped through into him, he would suffer a sudden panic, as if he was losing himself, as if he no longer knew his own name. He would sit up, as now, all the muscles in his back rigid. She knew him well enough not to ask what was wrong, but, sleep besotted, the light from her eyes dimming to a satisfied glow, said simply, I love you. Your eyes are full of fireflies, he replied. She laughed, but he meant it, Entire cities, entire worlds pulsed inside those eyes, hinting at an existence beyond the mundane. Something in her gaze reminded him suddenly of the woman with the missing hands, and he looked away, toward the window that, though closed, let in the persistent sound of rain. Beside the window, his grandmother's possessions still lay in the shadows on the mantel. The next day, as he sat in Samuel Hogbottom's room, writing out invoices for the week's exports, Saffant Carnival Masks, rare eelwood furniture, necklaces from Nisa, all destined for morrow, he noticed something odd. He drew his breath in sharply, he pushed his chair back and stood up. There, grown at a right angle from the green cloth that covered the cage, was a fragile, milk-white fruiting body on a long stem, the gills tinged red. It was identical to the mushrooms that had appeared in Daft's mansion. He cast about for a weapon, his gaze fixed on the cage, 
there was nothing but the bottle of port. Beyond the cage, the fungus that had infiltrated the cracks of the mirror appeared to have darkened and thickened. Irrationally, he decided he had to remove the cage from the room. The room had schemed with the cage to produce the mushroom. Picking up a napkin, he wound it around the handle of the cage, which felt hot, and carried it out of the room to his desk. He stared across the store, trying to locate Bristol Wing through the clutter. His assistant stood in a far corner, helping an elderly gentleman decide on a chair. Hogbottom could just see the back of Bristol Wing's head, nodding at something the potential customer had said, both of them obscured by a column of school desks. Slowly, as if the mushroom were watching him, Hogbottom slid his hand over to the top drawer of his desk, pulled it open and took out a silver letter opener. Holding it in front of him, he approached the cage. Images of the woman and her son flickered in his mind. He couldn't keep his hand still. He hesitated. A vision of the mushroom multiplying into two, three, four came to him. Hogbottom leaned over his desk, chopped the mushroom off the side of the cage. It fell onto his desk, leaving behind only a small, circular white spot on the green cover, as innocent as a bird dropping. Hogbottom pulled his handkerchief out of his breast pocket and squashed the mushroom in its folds, careful not to touch any part of it. He stuffed the handkerchief into the wastebasket at his side. Then he fished out the handkerchief out, decided against it, and placed the handkerchief back into the wastebasket, fished it out again. Hogbottom realised that Bristlewing and his customer were now standing a few feet away, staring at him. He froze, then smiled. My dear Bristlewing, he said, what can I help you with? Bristlewing gave him a disgusted look. Mr Sporlender here was interested in a writing desk for his son. We've a good, solid chair, but rather horrendously, nothing appropriate in a desk. Anything in storage? Hogbottom smiled, intensely aware of the dead mushroom in his hand. The irritation caused by the handle of the cage flared up, pulsing across his palm. Yes, actually, Mr Sporlender, if you would come back tomorrow, I believe we might have something to show you. Just as long as he left the shop, Hogbottom nudged Bristlewing out of the way and guided the man toward the door. Babbling about the rain, about the importance of a writing desk, about anything at all, while Bristlewing's stare burned into the back of his head, Hogbottom had never been more impatient to reach the rain-scoured street. When it came, it was like a wave of light, of fresh air. It hit him with such force that he gasped, drawing a sharp look from Mr Sporlender. As they stood there on the cusp of the street, the door at Hogbottom's back, the man stared at him through narrowed eyes. Really, Mr Hogbottom? Should I come back tomorrow? Would you truly advise that? Hogbottom stared down at his hand, which was about to rebel and throw the handkerchief and mushroom as far away as possible. Some of the early afternoon passers-by already stared curiously at the two of them. It's up to you, really. We might have a desk in storage. Sporlender sneered. I saw what you put in the handkerchief. I know what it is. Well, in that case, Hogbottom said, why don't you take it with you instead of a desk? And held the handkerchief out toward the man. Keep that away from me, Sporlender said, and hurried off down the street, concentrating on putting as much distance between them as possible. It was of no consequence to Hogbottom in that moment. Ignoring the stares of those around him and feeling strangely light-headed, he started off in the opposite direction, past sidewalk vendors, a thin stream of pedestrians and an ever thinner stream of carts and carriages, which the rain rendered into smudges and humid smells. Only after three or four blocks, soaked to the skin, did he feel comfortable tossing the handkerchief and its contents into a public trash can. 
He already had an image in his head of soldiers searching his store for traces of the wrong kind of mushroom. A man was thrown up into the gutter. A woman was yelling at her husband. Two doggy tribesmen hunched against the closed doors of a bank, their distinctive green spiralled hats pulled down low over their weathered faces. The sky was a uniform grey. The rain was unending, as common as the very air. He couldn't even feel it anymore. Everywhere, in the cracks of the sidewalk, in the minute spaces between bricks and shop fronts, new fungi was growing. He wondered if anything he did mattered. He wondered if Sporlender would tell anyone. Back at the store, Bristol Wing was grumpily moving some boxes around. He spared Hogbottom only a quick glance, watchful, wary. Hogbottom brushed by him and headed for the bathroom, where he scrubbed his hands red before coming out again to examine the cage. It looked just as he had left it. The green cover was unblemished but for the white spot. There had been no proliferation of mushrooms in his absence. This was good. This meant he had done the right thing. Why then was it so hard to draw a breath? Why so difficult to stop shaking? He sat down behind the desk, staring at the cage. The inside of his mouth felt dry and thick. Nothing happened without a reason. The mushroom had not appeared by coincidence. This he could not believe. How could he? Against his instincts, he reached over to the cage and pulled the cover aside, the green giving way to the finely etched metal bars, the shadows of the bars letting the light slide around them so that he saw the perch gently swinging and below it a pale white hand, slender and delicate, the end a mass of dried blood. He became utterly still. A vision overtook him that he was Samuel Hogbottom staring across the dining room table at the cage, which was the last thing he would ever see. The hand, he had no doubt, was from Daft's wife. What would it take to make it go away? But then his mind registered a much more important detail, one that made him bite down hard on his lower lip to stop from screaming. The cage door was open, slid to the side as neatly as the cover. He sat there, motionless, staring, for several seconds. Throughout the store, he could hear the myriad clocks ticking forward. No mask could help him now. The hand, the open cage, the fey brightness of the bars, a rippling at the edge of his vision. Somewhere Hogbottom found the nerve. He reached out and slid the door back into position with both hands, worked the latch shut. Just as he felt a sudden weight on the other side, rushing up to meet him, it brushed against his fingers and chilled them. He drew back with a gasp. The door rattled once, twice, fell still. The perch began to swing violently back and forth as if something had pushed up against it. Then it too fell silent, suddenly. He could not breathe. He could not call out for help. His heart was beating so fast he thought it might burst. This was not how he had imagined it. Something invisible picked up the hand and forced it through the bars. The hand fell onto his blotter, rocked once, twice and was still. It took five or six tries, his fingers nimble as blocks of wood, but he managed to find the cord to the cover and slide it back into position. Then he sat there for a long time, staring at the green cover of the cage. Nothing happened, nothing bad. The sense of weight on the other side of the bars had vanished with the drawing of the veil. The hand that lay on his blotter did not seem real. It looked like alabaster. It looked like wax. It was a candle without a wick. It was a piece of a statue. An hour could have passed, or a minute, before he found a paper bag, nudged the hand into it using a letter opener, and folded the bag shut. Bristlewing appeared in his field of vision some time later. Bristlewing, Hogbottom said, I'm glad you're here. Huh? You see this cage? Tight, tight control, imprisoned in his own thoughts. Yes? I need you to take it to Ungdom. Ungdom? 
Bristol Wing's face brightened. He clearly thought this was a joke. Yes, to Ungdom. Tell him that I send it with my compliments, that I offer it as a token of renewed friendship. Somewhere inside, he was laughing at Ungdom's future discomfort. Somewhere inside, he was screaming for help. Bristlewing snorted. Is it wise? Hogbottom stared up at him as if through a haze of smoke. Wise? No, it isn't wise, but I would like you to do it anyway. Bristlewing waited for a moment, as if there might be something more, but there was nothing more. He walked forward, picked up the cage. As Bristlewing bent over the cage, Hogbottom thought he saw a patch of green at the base of his assistant's neck, under his left ear. Was Bristlewing already infected? Was Bristlewing the threat? Another thing, take the rest of the week off. Once you've delivered the cage to Ungdom, if his assistant was going to dissolve into spores, let him do it elsewhere. Hogbottom suppressed the giggle of hysteria, felt a sudden kinship with the dead solicitor. Suspicious, Bristlewing frowned. And if I want to work? It's a vacation. A vacation? I've never given you one. I'll pay you for the time. All right, Bristlewing said. Now the look he gave Hogbottom was, to Hogbottom's eye, very close to pity. I'll give the cage to Ungdom and take the week off. That's what I said. Right. Bye then. Goodbye. As Bristlewing negotiated the tiny floatsome-lined pathway, Hogbottom could not help but notice that his assistant seemed to list to one side as if the cage had grown unaccountably heavy. Five minutes after Bristlewing left, Hogbottom closed up the shop for the day. It only took seven tries for him to lock the door behind him. When he arrived at the apartment, Hogbottom told Rebecca he was home early because he had learned of his grandmother's death. She seemed to interpret his shakes and shudders, the trembling of his voice, the way he needed to touch her, as consistent with his grief. They ate dinner in silence, her hand in his hand. You should talk to me, she said afterwards, and he catalogued all the symptoms of fear, as if they were the symptoms of loss, of grief. Everywhere he turned, the woman from the mansion confronted him, her gaze now angry, now mournful, her wounds bleeding copiously down her dress, but she did nothing to staunch the flow. They went to bed early, and Rebecca held him until he found a path towards sleep, but sleep held images to torment him. In his dreams, he walked through Samuel Hogbottom's apartment until he reached a long, white hallway he had never seen before. At the opposite end of the hallway, he could see the woman and the boy from the mansion, surrounded by great wealth, antiques fit for a god winking at him in their burnished multitudes. He was walking across a carpet of small, severed hands to reach them. This fact revolted him, but he could not stop walking. The promise of what lay ahead was too great. Even when he began to see his head, his arms, his own legs, crudely soldered to the walls using his own blood, he could not stop his progress toward the end of the hallway. The hands were cold and soft and pleading. But despite the dreams, Hogbottom woke the next morning feeling energetic and calm. The cage was gone, he had another chance. He did not feel the need to follow in Samuel Hogbottom's footsteps. Even the imprint on his hand throbbed less painfully. The rain clattering down made him happy for obscure childhood reasons, memories of sneaking out into thunderstorms to play under the dark clouds, of taking to the water on a rare fishing trip with his father while drops sprinkled the dark, languid surface of the river moth. At breakfast, he even told Rebecca that perhaps he had been wrong and they should have a child. Rebecca hugged him and told him they should wait to talk about it until after he had recovered from his grandmother's death. When she did not ask him about the funeral arrangements, he wondered if she knew he had lied to her. On his way out the door, he held her close and kissed her. Her lips tasted of honey from the toast. Her eyes were, as ever, a mystery. Once at work, 
Bristol Wing blissfully absent, Hogue Bottom searched the store for any sign of mushrooms. Donning long gloves and a mask, he spent most of his time in the old dining room, scuffing his knees to examine the underside of the table, cleaning every surface. The fungus embedded in the mirror had lost its appearance of renewed vigour. Nevertheless, he took an old toothbrush and a knife and spent half an hour gleefully scraping it away. Then, divesting himself of mask and gloves, he went through the same routines with his ledgers as in the past, this time reading the entries aloud, since Bristol Wing was not there to frown at him for doing so. Fragments of disturbing images fluttered in his mind like caged birds, but he ignored them, bending himself to his routine that he might allow himself no other thoughts. By noon, the rain had turned to light hail, discouraging many erstwhile customers. Those who did enter the store alighted like crows fleeing bad weather, shaking their raincoat and umbrella wings and unlikely to buy anything. By one o'clock, he had made very little. It didn't matter. It was almost liberating. He was beginning to think he had escaped great danger, nor did he believe that Sporlender had told anyone. But at two o'clock, his spirits still high, Hogbottom received a shock when a grim-faced member of the city's security forces entered the store. The man was in full protective gear from head to foot, a grey mask covering his entire face except for his eyes. What could they know? It wasn't time for an inspection. Had Sporlender talked after all? Hogbottom scratched at his wounded palm. How can I help you? he asked. The man stared at him for a moment and then said, I'm looking for a purse for my mother's birthday. Hogbottom burst out laughing and had to convince the man it was not directed at him. No one entered the store for half an hour after the man left. Hogbottom had worked himself into a fever pitch of calm by the time a messenger arrived around three o'clock. A boy in a bicycle, pinched and drawn, wearing dirty clothes, who knocked at the door and waited for Hogbottom to arrive before letting an envelope flutter to the welcome mat outside the door. The boy pulled his bicycle back to the sidewalk and pedalled away, ringing his bell. Hogbottom, softly singing to himself, leaned down to pick up the envelope. He opened it, the letter inside read in a spidery scrawl. Thank you, Robert, for your very fine gift, but your bird has flown away home. I couldn't keep such a treasure. My regards to your wife, John Ungdom. Hogbottom stared at the note, chuckling at the sarcasm, read it again, a frown closing his lips. Flown away home. Read it a third time, his stomach filling with stones. My regards to your wife. He dropped the note, flung on his raincoat, and not bothering to lock the store behind him, ran out onto the street, into the blinding rain. He headed up Albemuth Boulevard, through the bureaucratic quarter toward home. He felt as if he were running in place. Every pedestrian hindered him, every horse and cart blocked his path. As the rain came down harder, it beat a rhythmic message into Hogbottom's shoulders. The raindrop sounded like the tapping claws of something demonic. Through the haze, the dull shapes of buildings became landmarks to anchor his staggering progress. Passers-by stared at him as if he were crazy. By the time he reached the apartment building lobby, his sides ached and he was drenched in sweat. He had fallen repeatedly on the slick pavement and bloodied his hands. He took the stairs three at a time, ran down the hallway to the apartment, shouting, Rebecca! The apartment door was ajar. He tried to catch his breath, bending over as he slowly pushed the door open. A line of white mushrooms ran through the hallway, low to the ground, their gills stained red. Where his hand held the door, fungus touched his fingers. He recoiled, straightened up. Rebecca, he said, staring into the kitchen. No one. The inside of the kitchen window was covered in purple fungus. 
The cane lay next to the coat rack, a gift from his father. He took it and walked into the apartment, picking his way between the white mushrooms as he pulled the edge of his raincoat up over his mouth. The doorway to the living room was directly to his left. He could hear nothing, as if his head was stuffed with cloth. Slowly, he peered around the doorway. The living room was aglow with fungi, white and purple, green and yellow. Shelves of fungi jutted from the walls, Bottle-shaped mushrooms, a deep burgundy, wavering like balloons, were anchored to the floor. Hogbottom's palm burned fiercely. Now he was in the dream, not before. The cage stood on the coffee table, the cover drawn aside, the door open. Next to the cage lay another alabaster hand. This did not surprise him. It hardly registered. For, beyond the table, the doors to the balcony had been thrown wide open. Rebecca stood on the balcony, in the rain, her hair slick and bright, her eyes dim, strewn around her, as if in tribute, the strange growths that had long ago claimed the balcony, orange strands whipping in the wind, transparent bulbs that stood rigid, mosaic patterns of gold-green mould imprinted on the balcony's corroded railing. Beyond, the dark grey shadow of the city, dotted with smudges of light. Rebecca was looking down at nothing. Her hands held out before her as if trying to touch something. Rebecca, he shouted, or thought he shouted. His mouth was tight and dry. He began to walk across the living room, the mushrooms pulling against his shoes, his pants, the air alive with spores. He blinked, sneezed, stopped just short of the balcony. Rebecca had still not looked up. Rain splattered against his boots. Rebecca, he said, afraid that she would not hear him that the distance between them was somehow too great. Come away from there. It isn't safe. She was shivering. He could see her shivering. Rebecca turned towards him and smiled. Isn't safe? You did this yourself, didn't you? Open the balcony for me before you left this morning? She frowned. But then I was puzzled. You had the cage sent back, even though Mrs. Willis said we couldn't keep pets. I didn't open the balcony. I didn't send the cage back. His boots were tinged green. His shoulders ached. Well, someone brought it here, and I opened it. I was bored. The flower vendor was supposed to come and take me to the market, but he didn't. Rebecca, come away from the balcony. His words were dull, unconvincing, even to himself. A lethargy had begun to envelop his body. I wish I knew what it was, she said. You said it was a lizard, but it isn't. Can you see it? It's right here, in front of me. He started to say no, he couldn't see it. But then he realised he could see it. He was gasping from the sight of it. He was choking from the sight of it. Blood trickled down his chin where he had bitten into his lip. All the courage he had built up for Rebecca's sake melted away. Come here, Rebecca, he managed to say. Yes, okay, she said in a small voice, as if his tone had finally frightened her. Tripping over the fungi, she walked into the apartment. He met her at the coffee table, drew her against him, whispered into her ear, You need to get out of here, Rebecca. I need you to go downstairs, find Mrs. Willis, have a send for enforcers. Her hair was wet against his face. He stroked it gently. You're scaring me, she whispered back, arms thrown around him. Come with me. I will, Rebecca. Rebecca, I will, in just a minute. But now I need you to leave. He was trembling from the horror of the thought that he might never say her name again, and relief, because now he knew why he loved her. Then her weight was gone as she moved past him to the door, and perversely, his burden returned to him. The thing had not moved from the balcony. It was not truly invisible, but camouflaged itself by perfectly matching its background. The bars of a cage, the space between the bars, a perch, 
He could only glimpse it now because it could not adjust quickly enough to the raindrops that fell upon it. Hobottom walked out onto the balcony. The rain felt good on his face. His legs were numb so he lowered himself into an old rotting chair that they had never bothered to take off the balcony. While the thing watched, he sat there, staring between the bars of the railings out into the city. He tried not to look at his hands, which were tinged green. He tried to laugh, but it came out as a rasping gurgle. The thought came to him that he must still be back in the mansion with the woman and the boy, that he'd never really left, because, honestly, how could you escape such horror? How could anyone escape something like that? The thing padded up to him on its quiet feet and sang to him. Because it no longer mattered, Hogbottom turned to look at it. He choked back a sob. He'd not expected this. It was beautiful. Its single eye, so like Rebecca's eyes, shone with an unearthly light, phosphorescent flashes darting across it. Its mirrored skin shimmered with the rain. Its mouth, full of knives, smiled in a way that did not mean the same thing as a human smile. This was as close as he could get. He knew now, staring into that beautiful eye. This was as close. Maybe there was something else, something beyond. Maybe there was a knowledge still more secret than this knowledge, but he would never experience it. The thing held out a clawed hand and, after a time, Hogbottom took it in his own. And welcome back. That was as close as you can get. But we got just a little bit closer and asked Jeff Vandermeer what inspired this story. He told us, I was at a bar mitzvah party and kind of daydreaming in a corner with a glass of wine when I looked up and saw a birdcage in a corner near the ceiling of the banquet hall. There seemed to be no reason at all for it to be there. I let that anomaly stew for a bit, and then on a trip to the coast, my wife and I explored the central building at the University of Tampa, built by Flagler as a hotel to begin with. It had kind of a shining feel to it, and suddenly I saw it as a mansion, and the cage from the bar mitzvah relocated to it, and the story flowed out from there. The character grew out of a sense of both the fascination we have with physical human-built objects and how they also tend to trap us. Well, thank you very much for the incredible story, Jeff, and to Marbella for the exquisite reading. Now, let me trap you all with feedback. This week is for Donaglee Williams' The Circle Harp, read by Rashida Smith. The story of a harpist who makes a journey up the mountain to further her craft. Reaction to this story was a bit mixed, although a lot of our foremites were able to draw some really interesting parallels between the story and the difficult choices we face in life. Lots of interesting and long comments on this one, so I'm just going to kind of pick and choose and skim, starting with Lee, a fellow harpist who said, among other things, I'm not sure what impressed me more about this story. Was it the fact that the traveler had chosen to set out on a journey that was not going to be easy, or the fact that she ultimately left what she knew behind? Either way, I thought it spoke volumes about the choices we make and the risks we take. Seeker Pilgrim said, I found it a metaphor for several decisions in life, abandoning an old romance or friendship for a new, perhaps an old pet or even leaving an old parent with Alzheimer's at a retirement home or on life support. 
One of the many magical characteristics of storytelling is that sometimes what's important isn't the story itself, but how it makes you think, feel, or reflect. This is one of those times. Flash Darling said, Leaving the old for the new is a leap of faith. If it is a career, a relationship, or a home, it's not a perfect analogy for every transition, but it worked well enough that I thought both sides had merit. Enough so that I couldn't be sure of the ending until it happened. And there's lots more where that came from. You can visit them all at forum.escapeartist.net to read the rest of it. And while you're there, let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast running so we can bring you the best and strangest fantasy that grows up in our genre addicts like giant mushrooms. Thanks. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dave Thompson, and you hear me week in and week out, but I'm only part of the awesome Team Podcastle. My fellow team members are Ann Leckie, our associate editor, Peter Wood, our sound producer, and Anna Schwind, my co-editor. On behalf of all of us, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another strange mushroom-populated story, courtesy of Erica Satifka. Until then, I'm Dave Thompson, reminding you that people are strange, especially when they're mushrooms. Take our hand. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. This week's closing quote is from Emily Dickinson's poem, Mushroom, which reads, Had nature any outcast face? Could she a son condemn? Had nature on a scariot, that mushroom, it is him. <laughs>